Hello there and welcome to the 1201 podcast. We are calling from the final frontier. I'm joined today by Callum Watt. Good afternoon, Callum. Good afternoon. I'm joined by Ollie Walwyn. Hello there, everyone. And I'm joined by Bradley Allsop. Hi, folks. And obviously the top of the news over the last couple of hours is the announcement of the Tier 4 restrictions for London and the South East. So we're going to get straight into that. But what do these restrictions mean? Well, essentially, don't leave your house. This is a lockdown. Non-essential shops are closed. You're not going to be able to get out of the house and visit your family over Christmas. And this is also extended to the rest of the country in terms of Christmas restrictions. So now it's down to just Christmas Day for visiting in those Christmas bubbles. Also, we're going to see travel bans in place, not just between the southeast and London, but also internationally. Already, the Netherlands and Belgium have put in travel restrictions between the UK and their airports and rail stations where necessary. We're also seeing probably a lot of other countries putting in those restrictions over the next couple of days. So we'll get straight into it. Is this a sensible decision that they've taken? And is it being taken far too late? Callum? Well, huh. well, far too late. Yeah, absolutely. That's the that's the inarguable point, isn't it? Um, I, 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 I reposted it because I couldn't really say it any better. Owen Jones summed it up immediately after the announcement. This government uh, should have locked down in March. They should have done it in November. This is probably the most predictable pandemic, plague, whatever you want to call it, in history. You know, I, I think our ancestors, you know, had to struggle with diseases without understanding epidemiology, without understanding immunology. They thought it was all sent from God on the basis of our sins. Um, maybe that is that maybe that's true at the base of it, but we know at least we know how it all really works now. Um, and uh, we have at this point, you know, we're at the, at the pinnacle of scientific achievement, you know, um, the, 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 the great frontier um, of what we understand. You know, we've had um, a year of intensive global research about how this virus runs. It's no longer really a novel coronavirus. We, we understand it quite thoroughly. Even this new variant, variant they're talking about, they've identified exactly the 23 ways in which it is different from, uh, from the original uh, COVID-19 uh, variant. Um, and yet, despite all this experience around the world, all of those other examples, places like New Zealand that have cracked down on it um, entirely, uh, places across Europe that have dealt with it okay, um, places that have dealt with it even worse than us, like America. Um, despite all of that information, they have still completely fucked it up. Um, you know, we were talking as we said over the summer, we knew that cases would start to rise in the winter when the weather would start to get colder. We were talking on this podcast about you know a pot potentially locking down at the end of September, more likely in October. 
then November was really the crunch time, according to the scientists, and that's when they were really pushing uh, for a circuit breaker. They didn't do it. They waited until the last minute. Uh, then we were talking about how they were going to open the country up on the 2nd of December, um, but while also saying that we could have uh, a break over Christmas. Complete madness. They should have kept the national lockdown in place until at least... Well, until the last, last minute, probably last Friday. Again, I'm not an epidemiologist myself, but I think to even laymen, that's, that seems obvious. If we were going to have our merry little Christmas, uh, as Boris Johnson was talking about, that, that, it needed to, that national lockdown needed to happen then. This has been completely predictable. This must surely have seen it coming. And... It's either incompetence or deep cynicism. Some people have suggested that maybe, you know, it was so that people would still invest in Christmas shopping, decorations and so on to keep the economy running. I really hope that isn't true in a way. In a way, I kind of hope that it is incompetence because that otherwise that shows that our government are really. I mean, we know they're psychopaths, but this that would be on a on a complete other level. And we probably won't know exactly what they've been thinking. Um, in well ever because I I doubt they'll ever be genuine about it, but we might probably won't find out any idea until people start writing their memoirs in years to come. Civil servants perhaps working, people with axes to grind against one another. But you know it, it, this is obviously coming coming too late, um, and uh, I'm heartbroken because I'm not going to be able to see my family because um, they're in they're in tier tier four. Um, many, many other people, millions of people are, are in exactly the same position. And the key thing is it doesn't, didn't need to be this way. It really didn't. Um, and I just hope that, you know, people, people remember that. There's a suggestion that Boris Johnson might go in January. I don't think so. I think they'll follow a similar tactic they did with Theresa May and just let him absorb all of the bad news. Um, that's a typical Tory tactic if you want to talk about the politics of it. But in the meantime, I don't think that's really on anyone's um, radar at the moment. Um, I think this is just a, a, an appalling and completely avoidable um, tragedy um, that we now all have to deal with and survive until until that vaccine saves us in the end. Mm, absolutely. And I think the, the standout feature of this for me is the absolute panic it's caused for people up and down the country. The fact that the government only as, as early as Wednesday and as recent as Wednesday was saying that they're not going to cancel Christmas, accusing the Labour Party and scientists of, of fear mongering, uh, accusing anybody that said that perhaps maybe we should rethink our approach to Christmas of of somehow trying to cancel christmas i heard one person say actually we shouldn't be cancelling christmas but be postponing christmas until a later date um it's it seems to me that this panic that's been caused by it because it was such a sudden u-turn is probably one of the most reckless decisions we've seen throughout this whole pandemic because this new strain is so fast spreading because it has got that potential to burn through the population like wildfire, I think that's extremely scary and extremely concerning for people up and down the country. And I think 
the knee-jerk reaction from the government has led to a knee-jerk reaction from people that have had enough of being told one thing and then immediately told another thing a few days later. People that have had enough of the restrictions and rightly are, are, are confused and angry with the government. So they've decided to stick two fingers up and get a train last night, which is why we've seen pictures like we saw at St Pancras Station in London. Ollie, what's your take on the last couple of days? I mean, it's just absolutely bonkers, isn't it? Um, as as you both have, have said, it's just it's so so late, six days before Christmas, to be to be announcing the policy for Christmas. I mean, we've been saying it on this podcast for for weeks now, and and health uh, institutions like in the country have been saying it for since November, and and before that, I'm sure. It's just I, I can't see how this benefits them at all, um, and it's just a complete lack of, of clear leadership. Um, even amongst you know people that were supporting uh, Boris throughout the pandemic, um, I think this surely must expose him for what he is, and it's just a completely incompetent um, and indecisive leader. I mean, as you say, Callum, he was in the he was in the Commons last week trying to frame Keir Starmer as someone who wants to cancel Christmas. I mean, maybe if if this had been done at the the beginning of December, it might have been. It might have been something we were able to, you know, wrap our heads around and plan for, but because because it's been left so late, it's just it's it's I can't believe it. Honestly, I was in a bit of shock um, to hear about it. I mean, yeah, it, it's quite scary uh, that our, our lives are in, in the hands of these people. Um, yeah, merry dystopian Christmas, everyone. <laughs> and if if that's a title for a podcast or a book, I don't know. Bradley, what's your take on the last couple of days? I mean, yeah, I agree with the sentiments that have come before. It, it, it's bonkers, isn't it? It's going to be the weirdest Christmas ever. Um, I think I'm, I'm actually genuinely surprised that Boris has taken these steps. Um, I, I think, I think he, him and the cabinet are quite spooked. Actually, I don't know if that's because there's projections they've seen that we've not, um, or, or maybe just the, the advice from the scientific advisors is just particularly stern or whatever, but I, I think something must have spooked them a little bit to, to take this action because I, I really I thought Boris would avoid this action at all costs. You know, he's effectively cancelled Christmas for, for how many is it in tier four? It's several million, it's 17 million, is it? Or something like that? Yeah, it's something in that region, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and obviously for everyone else, Christmas is significantly reduced, you know, from the five days, which in fairness, I always thought the five days was a bit mad. I think I could understand the purpose of five days in terms of not everyone's going to have Christmas Day and Boxing Day off. So you need a five-day grace period to allow, you know, retail workers and key workers and things like that to, to be able to make use of it. But it, I don't think it was ever quite clearly communicated like that. And it was sort of just like, you, you can have a five-day jolly sort of thing. It, sh- it should have been, you know, one or two days within this five-day period, I think, should it should have been made clearer to people. Um, obviously, that's been significantly reduced just to Christmas Day now. Um, and, and obviously, for key workers and, and others, that, that's going to present real problems in terms of, you know, they, they might not actually have much free time on, on Christmas Day. Um, I I do so. I, so I think that you know they're seeing stuff and they're getting data and they're getting warnings from the scientific community that, that's you know really speak them. And it must be something worse than we've seen before because it's not as if we've not had you know projections that project you know thousands of deaths over a time period and the government's not really responded in this sort of way. So it it, it must be something bad coming is what I'm saying in terms of projections. And um, I think obviously this new strain in in London and the southeast it, 
is probably part of that. I think some of the stuff I was seeing on the news yesterday was suggesting that it could be up to seventy, it could spread up to seventy percent faster um, than um, the, the usual strain we're all familiar with. Uh, luckily, no suggestion that it, it kills at a, a worse rate or, or that the vaccine won't be effective against it. Although I suppose they're probably still running tests and, and still trying to get to the bottom of that. But at the moment, there's no evidence that suggests those things. So that's good. But obviously, it spreads significantly faster. I do think there's a danger in allowing the narrative to be captured by this new strain, though. because And I think the government are very much preparing to do this. And I think I, I think it was last week sometime when they first announced this this new strain, I think, Matt Hancock announced it to Parliament last week sometime. Um, and, and at the time, I think I was listening to Navarra Media and they sort of questioned, you know, what, why why is he making a parliamentary announcement about this? You know, viruses mutate all the time. And I, I don't know. And, you know, so some in the scientific community suggested, you know, a bit alarmist to sort of announce a new strain had emerged in, in the southeast to, to Parliament when you know, viruses go through multiple mutations all the time. I don't know, and obviously now, you know, maybe at that time they had seen that the, they'd seen early evidence that it was a faster spread, and, that, and that's why they announced it. But I, I also think, you know, there's some groundwork being laid here to blame the catastrophe that is now going to be Christmas and the thousands more deaths we're going to see over the next couple of months. I think there's going to be an attempt to shift that onto this new strain and say, oh, this new strain has emerged completely out of our control. Um, you know, it, it's got a faster spread rate. We, we, no one could have predicted this. Nothing we could have done about it. Um, but actually, even if you take the new strain out out of out of the scenario, the whole of December has been a complete fuck up from start to finish. Anyway, and the and the moves the government have made were going to result in in thousands of deaths over the next couple of months. Anyway, um, the idea that you could release a, a national lockdown on second of December, put people back into a tiered system that had proven itself woefully inadequate at controlling the virus, and then also give people a five day jolly around Christmas time. The idea that that was going to do anything but result in 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 new you know huge numbers of, of unnecessary deaths um, was always ridiculous. So I think we were always probably going to be in this position anyway. But I think the new strain has has whether whether the government would have gone and reduced the five day period without this new strain, I don't know. But the, without the new strain, we still would have seen seen enormous amounts of unnecessary deaths. So I think there, we need to very much be cautious about the narrative of blaming all of this on the new strain. So I think things were, were pretty foobar anyway um, without this new strain. Mm. And I think also we've got to consider that with the uh, panics that have followed, it's very easy to also blame individuals now as well. Less so on the government, more so on individuals that have been forced into making a, a very quick decision whether they're going to beat this deadline of, of midnight um, on, the, on the 20th. Well, that, that's... December. That's a key point, though, isn't it, as well? Because actually, yeah. ha- how many people are actually going to comply with the rules now? Uh-huh. I- I've already seen people I know saying, you know, no, no one's going to listen to a damn thing the government says about COVID from now on, are they? I-, I do feel like this might be a turning point. I think trust in the government's response to the pandemic has been in trouble for a while, but for very good reason. Um, I feel like this might push some people over the edge that, that were trying to be patient with the government. Um not necessarily predicting what the political outcome of that will be, because we could be years away from an election. What I think the immediate impact of it might be is um, lack of compliance with the rules. I think, you know, because it's Christmas and Christmas has such a special sort of place in the collective psyche. I, I feel like there's going to be a lot of people not listening to these rules. Um, I, don't, I don't know, maybe tier four people might, because it, 
you know, he's introduced a whole new tier. That sounds really serious, doesn't it? Maybe that will shock people into complying. Um, but but I, I I think I think there's going to be significant numbers of people not respecting the rules over the Christmas period. Not not endorsing that. Just saying it's 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 a potential outcome of this absolute clusterfuck that the government's created. Mm. And I, and I think um, the the issue is is that I've been I've been trying to listen to people's opinions this morning through multiple media channels, um, and it's not exactly the best source. But uh, listening to somebody on LBC just to get a view of the people of that mindset, and they're saying they're not going to listen to the rules they're having in their family over for Christmas because they've made their plans. They bought the turkey, the presents are under the tree and they're just going to ignore the rules. So I have a feeling that we are going to have more of, 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 of people that are discontent with what the government's saying that are not going to listen to the rules as much as maybe in the past. When I was heading down to London uh, for Christmas, there was somebody at the train station refusing to put on a mask. I think we're starting to see this, and this is the danger when you have such a flippant government willing to U-turn left, right, and centre. Because in the end, you end up tying yourself in knots and confusing people and making people angry. And it so uh, was it busy on the trains as well? Yeah. Sorry. Was it busy on the trains as well? Yes. Yes. Um, those pictures you saw of, of St Pancras going around on social media. Uh, my train down to London was relatively busy. The train coming out of London that we passed at Peterborough that was sitting at Peterborough going up to Newcastle, that was packed. Both first class and standard class packed to the rafters. You see, with I, people trying to get out. See, I, I took trains during the pandemic, you know, sort of when things were a bit quieter in the September, October period. And mm. I obviously had to travel to work to go to the office for a couple of days. And I was on trains then. And that was sort of at peak times as well. And trains were very quiet at that time. You know, there were people on them, but no way near what you would expect at peak times during normal life. Um, so tra- traffic has definitely been down on trains, um, even during the quieter periods of this year in terms of the pandemic. So the idea that you, you know, you've got packed trains go- going going into London just sort of proves this idea that you're going to get you know mass exoduses in and out of Tier Four um, from people trying to be with their families. And, and imagine the vectors on that now. Imagine how many people have been affected last night b- b- because of because of poor government handling, basically causing a panic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Callum, I'll bring you in here. You've had your hand up for a while. Yeah, um, I think we were saying before recording that, you know, in addition to all of that, uh, all of the work that the government has done to help the virus to spread amongst the population over the last few months, um, short of just completely relaxing all of the rules, um, now that there is this new variant at the southeast, they have done the one thing that they could possibly do to guarantee it will spread to the rest of the country um, by announcing a change to the rules with about six hours notice um, and ensuring that all of those people who live in London will then panic and then spread it to the rest of the country. I Yeah, it's just shocking. Um, and, you know, we really do, just building on what Bradley said, we really do need to make sure that um, the government isn't allowed to craft this narrative that this new variant just popped up out of nowhere and that they were, you know, spooked by it and that's what caused them to change the decision. No, we have known about this variant for months. We have known about it for months. And just to, you know, 
I, I was also expecting something else before we were recording, just as another sort of you know, segue, if you like. There's a w wonderful video made back in 2015 uh, by a chap called CJP Gray. I've managed to find it now. Um, it's called America Pox, The Missing Plague. Go and watch it on YouTube. It explains why, basically, uh, pandemics like this happen. Um, and comparing it to uh, North America uh, back in the in the middle of the last millennium before uh, European settlers arrived. North America, the uh, population was sparsely spread across the uh, continent. You didn't see plagues happen there. But in Europe and in China and in the Middle East and India and so on, where there are large concentrations of people, um, especially large concentrations of people living with animals, um, you create many, many more opportunities by doing that for a virus to spread. You create, it's basic mathematics. If there are more hosts for a virus to spread into, there are more opportunities for it to mutate, more opportunities for new variants to emerge that can uh, defeat our immune systems and cause widespread plagues like this. If you live with animals as well, which is of course what happened with COVID-19, then there's also um, scope for interspecies transmission as well. That's how it got started. So if you look at this new variant in the UK, for example, um, where has it emerged? In the southeast of England. Where is our highest concentration of population? In the southeast of England. What has the government been doing in terms of its restrictions? Where have they been a little bit looser than the rest of the country? In the southeast of England. And you just kind of seem, uh, seem to wonder, you know, you know, we're, we're a technologically advanced nation. We have also the advantages of global research, as I said earlier. Um, they must know all this. And it's almost as if they're just trying to help the virus, because this is exactly what you would need to, to guarantee it spreading amongst the population. So we cannot allow them to get away with saying they were taken by surprise, because they absolutely were not. It was either incompetence or malice, um, and people need to remember that. Yeah, and and that's that's always the the debate here. And um, I just wanted to bring in the the labour reaction. So this morning, Sunday the twentieth of December, Keir Starmer gave a live press conference, which is quite rare. You don't normally see political leaders giving conferences on a Sunday, so. And I just wanted to give his reaction to the uh, to the to the new measures that have been brought in. So uh, he's described uh, the plans originally as a free for all over Christmas that was a risk too far. He says, "I know that people uh, are feeling hurt and there's anger because Christmas is more than just a holiday, and it's a part of who we are as a nation." Sadly, the measures the government announced yesterday are necessary, and we support them. But there is no getting away from the fact and what angers people the most and frustrates me the most is that yet again the prime minister waited until the 11th hour to take this decision it was blatantly obvious last week that the prime minister's plan for a free-for-all over christmas was a risk too far and yet rather listening to the concerns and taking them seriously the prime minister did as he always does dismiss the challenge ruffled his hair and made a flippant comment he goes on to say the alarm bells have been ringing for weeks and he ignored them. He also says 2021 can be a year of recovery, but only if the government gets it right. I don't know if any of you watched that 
press conference, but I found it very interesting. I know Keir Starmer also spoke about the uh, the need to follow scientific advice, and we know certain members of this Tory government like to dismiss so-called experts as not knowing the truth, and actually our political masters are the real people in the know. Bradley, you wanted to come in here? Yeah, it, it's nice to be able to agree with uh, my, my party leader for once when he, when he, when he puts something out there. Um, so that, that's pleasant. I, I think I think Boris, really, he's, he, he's a complete populist. And uh, he, he will do and say whatever he thinks in that moment will, will benefit him. So, you know, the point's been made already, and, and Keir's alluded to it there in his statement, of, you know, was, was it three, four days ago um, in, in PMQs where Starmer challenged him on this? And Boris's answer was basically just say, oh, are you trying to cancel Christmas? Complete populist message there. You know, people love Christmas. I, if I construe what the Labour leader is saying is, is in any way threatening people's enjoyment of Christmas, um, that, that's a great way to just, you know, sort of ad hoc dismiss him and, and not have to actually engage in, in the points he's bringing forward. Um, and, and that's Boris's style all the way through. Um, and this this is what happens when you have a leader that runs a government that way. People die. He does not have a clear, uh, short, med- well, I suppose he has a short-term plan now, but he doesn't have a medium to long-term plan, really, to, to, to deal with serious issues in this country, um, particularly the virus. He He's always said and done at every point what he thinks people want to hear. Usually that's tacked to the loosening of restrictions or delaying restrictions. And then he only brings in the severe restrictions at the absolute last minute when he's got he's completely backed into a corner and has got no other choice. That's when he makes the hard decision. The problem with that is that thousands of people die as a result of his inaction. And it's because he's completely unable to make difficult decisions. And, it, and his tendency is just to tack towards what he thinks the people want and to give people the, the nice, easy message that makes him look like a good bloke. And it it... He's woefully inadequate to be in that position. You know, I, I've always got obviously issues with any Tory PM, but I think Boris is uniquely unqualified for that role. He does not have the personal characteristics to be a leader, particularly in a time of crisis. And the sooner we get him out, even if it's to be replaced by someone else from the Tory party, obviously there'll be lots of issues with their policy agenda. But Boris, I think, is is uniquely terrible at this job. Hmm. Yeah, and, and Ollie, I'll get your reaction to the Labour Party's, uh, um, I suppose, their reaction to the to the announcement. Because obviously this week we've had this debate rumbling on as to who's going to be cancelling Christmas and who's going to be the Grinch that stole Christmas. But now we've got this, uh, this U-turn from the government and uh, very quickly their rhetoric has, has, uh, has disappeared around cancelling Christmas. Instead, it's... Uh, a merry little Christmas or a toned down Christmas for many people. Well, I think it's quite interesting because if you'd asked me, um, if you'd asked me about Keir Starmer last week um, when he was having his uh, PMQs in, in the Commons, um, sorry, when when Boris Johnson was having his PMQs in, in the Commons, um, I would have said he, you know, he was quite effect, uh, ineffective at, at challenged challenging the government on this. Um, you know, he's been trying to frame Boris Johnson as a person who who's not serious, who is incompetent. Um, you know, and he's done a lot of damage. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how effectively he's been able to do that, but I don't know. I haven't. I'll admit, I haven't watched the the press um, conference this morning with Keir Starmer. But could this be he's actually taking a strong stance on something? I mean, it's it's uh, it's something that's obviously going to be 
hugely popular to challenge, um, especially at this time with the public. Um, so does he does he feel safe enough to actually take a stance on something? I don't know. It's not something we've seen so far. Um, that's for sure. Um, so so yeah, it, it's it's quite interesting. Um, Labour's reaction to that, but if if they actually um, are able to hold the government uh, to account on this to actually challenge uh, these decisions and, and their timings effectively, um, you know that'd be it'd be a nice change. <laughs> but um, as Bradley says, it's nice to agree with you, <clears throat> the party leader of Labour for once. Yeah, no, and I would agree with both both of your sentiments. Actually, this statement from Keir Starmer is is really clear. It's a case of we've been saying this for at least two weeks now that the Christmas period, this Christmas measures that they've announced prior to tier four were inadequate for controlling the spread of the virus. And it's only this extra strain becoming apparent how serious it is that has that has ensured that we're going to finally have a safer Christmas that might hopefully reduce the spread of the virus. And I think that Another thing that, that's important to remember is that actually this strain of the virus, obviously we didn't know everything about it at the time, has actually been around since September. So scientists have been aware of it for, for a long time, and yet we had no idea of, of how prevalent and how quickly it could spread until very recently, and still no action was taken until the 11th hour. So we're, we're going to be waiting and seeing as to the consequences of the government's inaction. And uh, I'm sure you'd all share this sentiment that we hope that the virus does not spread as badly as we fear. And we hope that the Labour Party continues to hold the government to account on the matters. But from one crisis that is going to be risking jobs and the economy and the state of the country to another, the Brexit talks are still ongoing. I thought I'd give them a small little mention. The government uh, and the EU are still locked up there, so we are uh, haven't really got much to report on from last week. But we'll uh, look at the Tory party's inadequacies when it comes to child poverty. This week, Jacob Rees-Mogg accused UNICEF of playing politics over a UK food campaign. This is because for the first time in its history, UNICEF has had to give aid to children in the United Kingdom who are going hungry because they are that impoverished. I mean, for me, this is probably one of the most shameful things for this country. And that's regardless of what we've seen this year. The fact that we have children in poverty to the point that they need aid from a UN body is ridiculous. I think that it's extremely shameful. And I think that Jacob Rees-Mogg in, in saying that this is some sort of political move from UNICEF is is outrageous. It's not a political move. It's a necessity that this government is not filling in. So I don't know who wants to come in on that, on on this story. I, I will if you want. Um, <laughs> okay, <sure. laughs> so, Definitely so... So yeah, this is this is something that happened um, just towards the end of last week. I mean, it's just it's it's completely out of a Dickensian novel, really, isn't it? You've got this, you know, really eccentric, um, uh, really hard right um, 
you know, a really disgusting man, in my opinion. He's just, he's awful. Um, Jacob, Jacob Rees-Mogg, he's, he's among the the most extreme um, in the in the Conservative Party. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's just, it, it highlights the complete denial that the Conservative Party have about poverty in this country, and particularly about child poverty, because, you know, any time they get challenged on it or any, anyone says anything on it, they uh, bring up some statistics which, which um, you know, show them in a favourable light, and it just completely, um, it completely ignores the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of children in poverty in this country, um, and this is just an. Ex- I think this is, you know, it's quite a, an elaborate extension of that um, to challenge UNICEF on actually giving aid to children in this country. I mean, they're a, they're a humanitarian organisation which typically give humanitarian aid to um, you know, Africa and, and the global south and uh, third third um, third world countries, um, and it, it shouldn't be happening in, in Britain. And I think he was quite effectively challenged on this, um, particularly by Zara Sultana, who, which is one of my favourite um, kind of political uh, narratives of the year, um, where she Zara Sultana, the the MP for. Uh, Coventry South gave gave Jacob Rees-Mogg or she sent it anyway to uh, a, a, sorry it was a copy of um, a Christmas Carol by by Charles Dickens because um, I think the message she sent was um, to the sentiment of how um, Charles Dickens was left off the Eton reading list which is it's kind of hilarious um, and I, I think you know that if that if that doesn't highlight um, the fact that you know the up the elite uh, and particularly the Conservative Party just don't believe um, that this poverty is happening in this country. Um, I just think that highlights it really well because um, it's clearly something they are in, um, you know, massive denial about. Absolutely, and just some statistics to uh, to to go with that. So this is according to the Ch- the Child Poverty Action Group. There were 4.2 million children living in poverty in the UK in 2018 to 19. So we haven't got even got the latest statistics. And I imagine potentially that's gone up over the last year due to the obvious effects of the pandemic. That's 30% of children in this country or nine in a classroom of 30. And I think that that's disgraceful. I think that that is disgusting. So, Bradley, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think I think that there's two. I think there's three types, but in this type of case, I think there's two types of Tory, aren't there? There's those that, that Ali's identified that, that are in denial, like you know they, they they've got their own tailored cherry pick set of stats, and and admit, you know they probably convinced themselves that it's not really an issue, or, or if it is an issue, it's one that the Tories are, are slowly chipping away at and improving, which is obviously a fantasy. Um, it, it, yeah, so there's that group that are genuinely in denial about the scale of this issue or, or the Tories' role in it, at least. Um, I, I do think there's another group. Um, I, I think they're a group that just don't really give a shit. Um, I, I think there's probably more Tories than, than we'd like to think. Um, of, of, I probably think, yeah, Jacob Rees-Mogg is, is, is probably in this group that they, they just don't really care. Um, you know, I, I don't think many people get to the top of the Tory party by being really passionate about solving you know child poverty because why would you be the Tory party if that's what you were most passionate about fixing 
Um, so, so I think there's probably a good chunk of Tories, uh, you know, higher up in the party that, that just frankly don't care about child poverty levels, and it, it's not really anywhere near the top of their, their priority. Um, I think there probably is also a third group, although it, it, I don't know if they, they apply in this case, that that do realise it's a problem, um, do care about it, um, but think the solutions are the things we've been trying to do for the last 40 years. You know, they, they think it's it's neoliberal politics. They think it's uh, more efficient markets. It's about people making themselves more employable. It's about responsibilising these people by not giving state handouts all the time. And they and they think you know the, these are the long term solutions. If we have more responsible people of higher moral bearing, uh, if we have more efficient market systems and, and and a government that stops propping things up all the time, then um, then in the long term we'll be able to fix these sorts of problems. Problem with that narrative, of course, is it's what we've been trying for the last forty to fifty years, um, and and it's not worked. If if you look at wage growth, if you look at inequality, if you look at poverty levels, you know uh, climate change, anything, any major issue of the day. Um, neoliberal politics has either not dealt with it or made it worse. So, you know, whether you're a Tory that thinks the solutions are what we've been trying to do for the last 50 years, whether you're a Tory that's in denial, whether you're a Tory that just doesn't give a shit, um, you, you probably need to read into it a bit more, actually. Um, and if you, well, I suppose if you're in the final group and not, not really caring, um, then, you know, we shouldn't have those people anywhere near mainstream politics, should we? If, if the state isn't there to... to give people a good start in life, including the very basics of nutrition, um, then what the hell is the state there for? Yeah, absolutely. Callum. Woo, well done. You've been in power for a decade and you've reduced it, reduced the number of kids in absolute poverty from, what was it, 3.8 million to 3.7 million, um, while at the same time you've also um stripped away um everything that would ensure that those kids are able to get on in life um you know uh, like um esa uh and and you know <laughs> tripling tuition fees um making that joe sorry to sort of re reference the pandemic again but house prices are going up again by the way because we're still not building houses you know it's um yeah, you can't call it a victory. It's uh, it's 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 massaging the figures. <laughs> That's all I would say on that. Mm. And I think that the uh, the the debate always is around how we measure poverty. So, the Labour Party and and people of a more progressive view on this tend to not just look at absolute poverty but relative poverty. Whereas the Conservative Party and, and their and their likes um, tend to look at absolute poverty as, as the only measurement. So yes, absolute poverty is relatively low in this country, but actually relative poverty is an important measure because actually in order to get on in British society, you do need more than just a basic wage. You need so much more. And if you can't access those resources because you're impoverished, because you're poor because of the system you live in and the welfare system fails you, then we should absolutely be saying that this is wrong and this should change. I'm not saying, well, at least they're not in absolute poverty. Bradley. Yeah, and I, and I think 
often, you know, poverty levels are sort of, I think by certain sections, even of the left, actually, are often held up as, as sort of the the end goal. Like, yeah, if, we, if we've if we got rid of poverty, then, then that's the end of the story. To me, that's the bare minimum that a government should be doing, particularly a socialist government, making sure we don't have people in absolute or, you know, even, you know, relative poverty. That, to me, is the absolute bare minimum. That's the start of the battle to, to transform society, not some sort of distant end state. You know, that should be the thing we get fixed straight away. You know, it should, shouldn't be anyone living in poverty. Um, but that's just the start of the story. What about inequality? To me, the idea that you can have um, billionaires, even millionaires, I don't think millionaires should exist. You know, the, the idea you can have people living obscene lives of luxury, you know, on, on super yachts that cost tens of millions, eating caviar and I, I don't know, God knows what else they get up, onto the, get up to on those yachts. You know, the idea that you can have that, with people, you know, even if they're not in poverty, but they're just sort of, you know, just that sort of scraping by, still living paycheck to paycheck. They've got a few, you know, small luxuries. They're okay by the standards of poverty, you know, metrics. But the idea that you've got that person there that still probably works bloody hard in their job um, compared to someone else, you know, living an absolute obscene life of luxury with enormous pools of wealth, by the way, that they'll never use and will just sit in a bank account for decades and then get passed on to their children, whose bank accounts it will also just sit in. The idea that that's okay and normal to me is just one of those bizarre things about the society we live in. It, you know, to take a step back for a minute and think about that and what that means. And, and you know, by the way, these, you know, these levels of inequality that we suffer, they do all sorts of negative things um, in terms of how actually the economy functions. It, it actually limits economic growth. Um, it, it does all sorts of things, I think, in terms of distortions of democracy when you've got press barons and and large donors to, to political parties, worse in the US, but, but still an issue here. Um, and I think it probably does quite negative things to our culture and, and our mental health and, and this sort of competitive sort of acquisition of wealth and all these sorts of things. So even if you put all of that aside, all these proven, you know, research negative impacts that obscene inequality has, and just take it as the fact of, you know, the, the enormous amount of opportunity and power and potential that people have with this hoarded wealth, but they haven't earned because no one can earn that amount of money um, through legitimate means. And and then you've got at the other end of the scale, people sort of just scraping by, even if they're not technically classed as in poverty. To me, that's just the most obscene thing about society we live in. So absolutely, let's tackle childhood poverty. Let, let's tackle poverty of all kinds. But let's also get to really work on, on inequality as well and, and tackle the huge hoarded wealth that these bloated billionaires have. And I, I think just to pick up on your point there about the culture, I think the reason why so many people now are willing to accept millionaires and billionaires as something that is just part of the normal uh, situation in society is because they've been sold that one day they too could become one of these people. They too can make it in society. When the reality is that actually society is incredibly unfair, incredibly imbalanced. And those who work the hardest, in a lot of cases, never get their, their rewards for what, they, for what they work. They get exploited. They get a bad deal. They get told that one day maybe they'll make it, just maybe if they work hard enough. And then they never will see that. And they will have no inheritance to hand over to their families. And yet that dream lives on because they're continually sold this vision of an economic system that works if you work hard enough. And we all know that that's a myth. We all know that currently the system 
does not serve the majority and it only serves that 1% or even less than that. It's less than 1%. It's a tiny fraction of people that actually benefit from this system. And as long as we have a state system, a welfare system that entrenches that inequality, I don't think that we're going to see massive reductions in poverty. I don't see any massive reductions in people suffering from extreme mental health, suffering from homelessness, suffering from all kinds of problems socially and physically, because the system just doesn't work for them. And yet they're, they're constantly told, just work that extra shift, work those extra 10 hours a week. Because actually, if you work your second job, then you'll have enough to just about get by. Is that really what we want? Or actually, do we want something better than that? And I think, certainly speaking for all of us in, in, in this podcast today, I think that's what we do want. We want that better standard and that better future and that aspirational future for people in this country. So we, I think we've, we've done that one there. That's, that's good stuff. And that, that brings us to the end of the podcast. If anyone got anything to add? Okay, so you've a farewell from Callum Watt. Good luck, stay safe, try and have a Merry Christmas. And uh, I hope that we, uh, I hope this vaccine comes soon and we can actually make up for it in the months to come. Absolutely. And Ollie Walwyn? Yeah, goodbye. Stay safe, everyone. I saw something quite interesting uh, yesterday, which was about uh, extra bank holidays next year, which I'm in support of to make up for all the the lost time that um, people have had to suffer through this year. Oh, let's make that a thing. I want that to be a thing. I think we deserve it. Absolutely. And every year as well. And a goodbye for Mr. Bradley Allsop. Yeah, very much in support of extra extra bank holidays. Always happy to take extra holidays in here. Um, but yeah, bye, folks. Stay safe, particularly if you're in in those tier four areas. Um, be be careful, be vigilant. Um, but yeah, I, I I hope people manage to have a good Christmas despite the circumstances. Absolutely, and I share those sentiments. Make sure you do stay safe, everyone. Obviously, we'll be back with another one of our podcasts very soon indeed. We've got all sorts coming up, but the important thing is you stay safe out there, folks. Goodbye. Goodbye.